Let's turn in God's Word again. Exodus chapter 25. Tonight, Exodus chapter 25. We're going to pick it up at verse 10. Simply note to you that although it's the last in our series on the various pieces of furniture found in the tabernacle, it's actually the first one that God commands. It's the first one that God commissions. After all, if one reads again verses 1 through 9, we understand the purpose of this whole of this tabernacle was in order that God might dwell with his people. So, of course, the the very first thing that God would outline to them to be built was the very object, the very piece of furniture that would signify God's presence with them. So, of course, it would have been the first. But because of its significance, we have made it last in our sermon series. I will also let you know that this will be a two-parter. We will not get through the whole thing tonight. Uh, we will indeed uh, return to this, Lord willing, next Sunday evening as well. Verse 10, chapter 25 of Exodus. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Rings on the one side of it, two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry it by them. The poles shall remain in the ark, in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. You shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work that you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. Then once again, if we turn to Exodus chapter 37, we read of the actual construction of the ark. Chapter 37, verse 1. Baziel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half with its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside. He made a molding of gold around it, and he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its one side and two rings on its other side. 
And he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he made two cherubim of gold and he, he made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end of one piece with the mercy seat. He made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again pray and ask for God's blessing. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your blessing on this word. We, as we hear it, we realize it's God's voice, but we realize it's your word. And we pray that you'll give it to us, that we may carry it with us all week, that we remember you we are your children, and therefore help us to be the one to spread that good word that we talked about. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. For tonight, we want to look at two things regarding this particular piece of furniture that God shows Moses the pattern of. First of all, the design of it, and then secondly, the purpose of it. First of all, the design. Once again, the size, it's not large. If we transfer the cubits into feet, we get something like this. It's about 45 inches long, not quite 4 feet. It's 27 inches wide and 27 inches high. It is no means an overwhelming piece of furniture. For all that is going to be said and all that is going to be done and all that occurs around this Ark of the Covenant, it really is kind of staggering to think about the fact that it's rather small in size. That God once again did not ask them to make something grandiose on a huge scale with great big long measurements of some sort. These are rather small objects. Now, one of the reasons, obviously, for that is these things are going to need to be carried. So how are you going to carry an extraordinary large object? That would become rather impractical. But there is also some note in regards to its simplicity, isn't there? That, that God is, is talking about sort of a, a simpleness while yet very exact. A simpleness and yet, at the same point, we'd say, quite complex, that there is really a lot going on for such a very small object. That's its size. The materials, the box, basic structure, the box part of it, is to be made out of acacia wood overlaid with pure gold. Actually, let, let me do it this way. I put it in the, uh, my notes are in the wrong order. Let, let's talk about the parts and then the materials. So if you're taking notes, it's size, parts, material. It, it is rather a little more complex. It's not just a table. It's not a lampstand. It, it's not an altar with its various parts. It's not a wash basin. It, it, it seems that God is, is almost being emphatic that that's, this art comes in with various components. There is, as I was trying to get to, a box. That's the basic structure. That's the, the 45 inches, 27 inches by 27 inches. It's just a box. But on top of the box, a second part 
that is second to it. It's not one with the box. That's kind of interesting to note that the lid that is going to go on top, called a mercy seat, is separate from the box, yet is on top of the box, but not one with the box. Yet, on top of the mercy seat, we have these two cherubim, angels, that are to be facing one another with their wings spread out towards one another. So it's not that, you know, they're spread out like this, okay? If the box is here, they're spread out over the box this way, with their wings forward, with themselves looking at the mercy seat. They're looking downward in that direction. And it's rather interesting that those two cherubim are to be one with the lid. So specifically, we're told these cherubim are to be one with the lid, yet the lid is not to be one with the box. So we have two very distinct components. That which is also added here is there we're given a little bit more insight about rings and poles. The difference here between all the other pieces of furniture that we have looked at is that God specifically says, never take the poles out. The poles are always to remain in the rings of the ark. Which would mean, if you stop to think about it, if God's giving a command specifically, don't take them out, it must be that with the other pieces of furniture, they did. The idea would be you'd set the piece of furniture, okay, such as the table of showbread, it too had rings okay, and, and poles, you'd take the poles out and set them aside. But with the ark, leave the poles in. A constant reminder of how the ark was to be moved. There was to be no mistake about the movement of this ark was to be done by poles. So we have a box, we have cherubim, we have rings and poles, we have a lid, and once again we have a molding. We have a rim of some sort some sort of decorative piece that is added to this particular piece of furniture. Now, when it comes to the materials, we find that the box and the poles are made out of this acacia wood overlaid with gold. But as far as the lid and the cherubim, they are to be made out of pure gold, solid gold. Now, you know, I, I'm sure there's some of you, your minds are just spinning going, how did they make those cherubim of one piece with the lid? How do you do that? Okay? It's not like you make a cherubim and then weld it to the lid. That's not of one piece. That's two pieces welded together. That's not what the text means. So it's not like they made a cherubim, made a cherubim, made the lid, and then said, okay, now take this cherubim, let's put some solder under there, put some solder under there, stick them on, hold them there, hold them, hold them, okay, we're all together, they're all of one piece. Now, of one piece means there's nothing in between. So between the lid and the cherubim, there's nothing, they're all one. The gold from the lid is the gold of the cherubim. And it's staggering to just step back and think, 
That was quite an artistic design. There, there's a lot of knowledge going on there. That's why in those chapters, God talks about the gifting that he gave to the two men to oversee this work and the craftsmanship that God gave to these individuals to be enabled to do this work. So never think about this as being simple and easy. There, there, is, a, there, there is complexity involved. That's what I said. There, there's a simpleness to this, but there is an exorbitant amount of complexity that is going into it that, that probably for many of us, we'd never be able to figure out how they did that. And yet, we're told, it's hammered. It's hammered. So it's not cast. It's not like they put it in a mold. See, that's probably where some of you were going. You were going, well, they just made a mold, and then they threw the gold in, they molded it, took it out. That's not what the text says. The text says it's hammered. So the, the complexity of doing that is a, is a relatively... inspiring thing, actually, to stop and think about. God so gifted people to be able to form exactly that which he desired in his worship. So, that takes care of our design aspects of it. It's, it, it's, it's not elaborate in that regard, but it is complex. But what we want to spend time with tonight is, is the purpose. What, what is the point of this Ark of the Covenant. First, it is to teach God's people His holiness. Now let me, let me point out three ways in which we do this. The first way is to understand where this Ark is placed. Remember, tabernacle faces east, door faces that way. If we're standing at the door of the tabernacle and are looking towards the east, towards the entrance of the courtyard, the first thing we would see is the laver. Beyond the laver is the brazen altar. As we turn around and look into the tabernacle from the, the door of the tabernacle, on our left is the lampstand, on the right is the table of showbread, right in front of us is the altar of incense that we talked about this morning. Behind that altar of incense is the veil. Then in that second room, in a room all by itself, is the Ark of the Covenant. The mere placement of that Ark in its own particular place, God is communicating the fact that He is a holy God. It's not a common place. It's not even common in the sense of priests daily going in and out. That's what they're doing in the front part of that tabernacle. Every day they're going in, trimming the wicks for the candlestick. They're offering the incense. Once a week they're going in and exchanging the bread that's on the table of showbread. There's a, there actually is quite a bit of activity in this part of the tabernacle. But in that back part, in that most holy place, in the place where the ark is going to be, there's not a lot of activity going on. God places it in its own room. The most holy place is what it's going to be called. It's not a common experience 
only once a year is anybody ever going to go in to that most holy place. One day out of 365 days, God orders the building of a particular piece of furniture that is only going to be seen one day a year. Now you think about the mentality, you know, we live in today, we would probably say, what a waste. Well, you're only using it one day a year? Don't need that. Let's get rid of that. That's not functional. That's not practical. Let's at least open up the curtain so we can be there. That says, no, no. Not only do I want my own room, I only want you to come into that room one day a year. And then, as we've reiterated a few times, but not to miss the point, by only one person. That by the high priest. If you're just if you're an ordinary priest, you don't go to go in there. Only the high priest, one day a year, into that special room to see the Ark of the Covenant. What is God teaching? I am a holy God. You don't just run into my presence. You don't just quickly fly into my presence. I am a holy God. I am to be approached with care. I am to be approached with thought. I am to be approached with caution. I am a holy God. Understand what it is that you are about to do. Secondly, it is to hold God's truth. What's the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant? It's to hold God's truth. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews, chapter 9. Remember I told you that, that you know, the, the 45 inches by 27 inches by 27 inches, the box, you'd say... Why does God want a box? What's the point of a box? Well, the point of a box is to hold something, right? So God had a point in making the ark a box. What does it hold? Hebrews 9, verse 2. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Three objects in the box. The law, a pot of manna, and Aaron's staff that budded. God's truth. 
Every one of those, in their own way, was a demonstration of God's truth. The law. The Lord is the lawgiver. He is the king. He is the sovereign. The pot of manna. Remember why there's manna in the first place? The people complained. The people complained that God could not take care of them. That God was not going to watch over them. That God could not provide them. God's truth, that he cares for his people, that he watches over his people, that he provides for his people, is that golden pot of manna. God's truth. Aaron's staff that budded. The story of the staff budding, some of you perhaps remember, others of you going, I'm drawing a blank. It was the story of the three men who rebelled in the wilderness. It's after God has judged them and said, you're going to wander for the 40 years in the wilderness, and they say, we're not going to listen. We're not going to follow. We think we're just as important as our Moses Aaron in the leadership of this place. God said, okay, bring me your staffs. You think, you think you're on an equal par with what I have declared? Fine, bring me your staffs. They brought the staffs, they put them in the tent of meeting. The next morning, Aaron's staff had budded. None of the others. God had said, Whatever staff in the morning has butted, that's the person I have selected. So they took an old, they t all took their old dried old sticks, put them in there, and they're all probably thinking, oh, this is an easy test, nobody. Yet Aaron's staff buds. God said, put that in the ark. That's my truth. I declared who it was that was going to lead this people. You were in rebellion. Actually, when you stop to think about it, all three items are a sign of rebellion. The law, which they constantly broke. The pot of manna, which showed they did not believe and trust God. And Aaron's staff that budded, which showed that they were in rebellion to God. All signs of wickedness and sin. What's the point of the Ark of the Covenant? It's to teach God's holiness, but it's also to teach God's truth. It's to be the holder of God's truth. And you see, now when you go to the next item, when we think about this mercy seat, some things begin to all of a sudden fall into place. Because the third purpose, the third purpose of this ark was to display God's mercy. That's what the lid is for. That's why we call it a mercy seat. Okay, Some, some versions call it the, the atonement cover. Now, now what happened here? Well, you know, just first of all, think of the names. The lid. What is it? A mercy lid. A lid to depict mercy. Why? Why mercy? Because look what underneath it. Sin, rebellion, trespasses, iniquity. God does not want the lid of one part 
but they are to be of two parts. Man in his sin and in his rebellion, and God in his pure and perfect mercy, covering, covering over the sin. So we have mercy seat, the seat of mercy. Not a place to sit. It's not a seat in that sense. It's where mercy rests. God's mercy rests upon that cover. The place of atonement. The place where sin is dealt with. The place where sin is covered over. Now why is it called that? Because on top of that lid is blood. On the day of atonement, the one day that the high priest gets to enter into this most holy place, where this Ark of the Covenant is, he comes with blood. The blood from an animal that has been sacrificed to cover the sins of the people. And God says, when you come to me, when you come into my presence, Aaron, or whoever the high priest is, you enter into my presence with the blood. Don't try to enter my presence without the blood. Blood goes before you. And you go behind the veil. And as you approach and stand before that Ark of the Covenant, take that blood and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. And I will see the blood. And I will grant you mercy. See, this was Israel's national day of repentance. This was Israel's national day of confession. They came to that animal that was to be sacrificed. The high priest puts his hands upon it, and he confesses the sins of the people. That animal then sacrificed, and blood of that animal placed upon that mercy seat. When I see the blood... I will forgive your sins. Now, you, you already, I know, are way ahead of me, right? We already are, are seeing the fulfillment of this in Christ. But even for these people, even in the Old Testament, this is the point. The point is that this displays the mercy of God. Every year there is a national day of worship in which you pause and reflect upon the fact that God is a God of mercy because He has provided for the atonement of His people. And there before their sins, their sin of rebellion, their sin of lack of trust, their sin of willful transgression against God's law, there, covering their sins, is the blood. Blood that provides mercy. Blood that provides atonement. Blood that is the covering for all of their sin. Blood. Only God is perfect holiness. Pure gold is the lid to be made out of. And only God, the person of His could provide. Thirdly, 
the third purpose, not only to teach God's holiness, not only to be the holder, the box for God's truth, not only to display God's mercy, but also to reflect His majesty. You see, there is no image of God, is there? We've got all this furniture. Some of it very decorative. But not one piece of furniture does God say, that's me. Not one piece of furniture does God say, and that is what I am like. One of our members asked even this morning, I want to make sure to answer the question, with all of this, why, you know, how, how is it that, that God says you shall have no graven images? Yes, you shall have no graven images of me. Of me. Don't try to confine me to a piece of furniture. Don't turn that piece of furniture into an object of worship. That would be idolatry. To take something that you have made with your own hands and to turn it into an object of worship, that is idolatry. And don't try to to say that one of these pieces of furniture is me. There is no me as far as on display. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. First and Second Thessalonians, 1 Timothy. Maybe, before I read this verse, maybe the way to, to look at this is to say, that which is where God is, is empty space. There's nothing there. In, in the sense of an object, in the sense of a piece of furniture, in the sense of something crafted out of gold. There is nothing there as far as that which is material that which has been formed, that which has been made by man. God is showing forth and reflecting His majesty, the fact that He is indeed the Creator, and He stands above the creation. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Make sure I got the right passage here. 1 Timothy 6, 16. Uh, let's go back to 13 to put it in context. I'm sorry. 1 Timothy 6:13. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus Christ, who is his testimony before Pontius Pilate, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light. No one, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He dwells in unapproachable light. See, what did the high priest see? 
And he goes behind that curtain on the Day of Atonement. Which he sees this unapproachable light. That which he sees is the Shekinah glory. He doesn't see God. He only sees the radiance of the glory of God. He only sees the radiance of what Paul writes to Timothy here as the unapproachable light. There is no image of God. All of this furniture, so you can have all of that stuff. But it doesn't mean idolatry. Because it is not stuff to be worshipped. Nor are we trying, was God trying to picture himself in the stuff. In fact, what God is really displaying is, look, see this empty space? Underneath the wings of the cherubim, above that mercy seat, see this unapproachable light, see this glory. It is within that glory that I dwell. It is within that unapproachable light that I exist. You, you, can't, you can't put a material picture, figure, image to God. It cannot be done. That's why we didn't hire Michelangelo to come and to paint God the Father standing in judgment. Because you can't paint God. He dwells in unapproachable light. He cannot be depicted. He cannot be displayed. Every display of God is a lie. Because he's beyond it. He is beyond whatever our minds can even begin to comprehend. Well, unapproachable light. What is the purpose of this art? teach God's holiness, to hold God's truth, to display God's mercy, to reflect His majesty. But if you go back to Exodus chapter 25, what it also comes down to is this, is I want to dwell with you. I want our relationship, God says to His people, be one in which I am with you. And I am willing to condescend, to come, to dwell between the cherubim in order that you might know that I am present with you. Check out in your notes, 2 Samuel 6, verse 2. Check out Isaiah 37, verse 16. This is the way the people of Israel understood it, that God dwells. His presence is between the cherubim, in that space, in that light, in that glory. God dwells. 
with us. He's not far from us. He is with us. He is present with us. Think of the extent to which God desires to commune. He considered not equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he tabernacled with us. He came. He came and dwelt amongst us. So great is God's desire to commune with his people. See, that which we do in worship is not for God. The real grace of worship is this, is that Almighty God condescends to come to us. That we can sing, God Himself is with us. How amazing is that, brother and sister in Christ, that God Almighty comes to us. desires for us to be with him in worship dwells between the cherubim. I'll leave you with this. Reflect on for next week. And I, Jehovah, change not. any different today than it was for the people of Israel. Father, we come again standing amazed, flabbergasted, jaws hanging wide open as we reflect upon Sovereign Lord, the King of Kings, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. He himself is with us. Blessing. Yet, Father, because of sin, so blind to your presence. Because of sin, we oftentimes are so unaware that you're here. open eyes, give us open ears, give us open hearts, give us open souls so that we may commune with you. Lord, how we long for the day when our faith shall be sight. How we long for the day when we shall behold him face to How we long for the day when our worship will no longer be subjected to to sin around us, but in the beauty of holiness, we worship our Lord, we look forward to that day made possible only through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. God's people say, Amen.